I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Hey, Ross. Good morning. Good morning, Jill. So, okay, let's start at the beginning, I guess. The superintendent had a report at the beginning of the meeting. She started out by talking about transportation, which seems to still be desperately problematic. Here we are in November. Yeah. So November 2nd was a meeting last night, and we didn't hear from the superintendent any updates around numbers or performance of of our buses, but we did hear from a parent. I will now invite our Cantonese interpreter. It's about their concern about the buses not showing up. My name is Peggy Chen. I live in Chinatown. My son, it's a special need kids. Because my my son is experiencing delay for transportation every single day, now my son does not want to go to school anymore. He feels very frustrated and he will cover, uh, he wouldn't get out of the bed. He will cover himself with um, with a blanket. I'm very concerned about my son because the delay of the transportation is significantly impacting his emotional health. He cannot um, catch up academically. He's lagging in school. Some of the transportation are 60 minutes behind. He's in the LD class. I'm expecting even the general class students um, may experience similar problem if that's happening to them as well. They couldn't catch up with other kids. Right. So it, it does seem like this is still a problem. We're hearing it on the streets. We didn't get an update yesterday. We did get a pretty significant update about the safety in schools. With the superintendent, interestingly, tying one of the primary reasons for the safety issues in schools to social media. Simple things such as social media fighting, uh, altercations on social media, that then the next day the students want to physically fight. So Superintendent Skipper did talk about the conflicts between our students. And she expressed her concern about that. You know, it's interesting though, right? So we've got we've got some serious issues. There have been multiple schools where they've found guns in schools. We've had a shooting near a school. We've had a stabbing in a school. So they're major concerns. It sounded like from certain school committee members that they're hearing that vibration in the parent community, that parents are very worried about safety in the schools. The superintendent tied that to a number of things that are happening when kids are out of schools, including like this real escalation of combative discussion over social media, which is then trackable. Part of what she talked about was, you know, needing a number of strategies based on, I guess, the school and the the kids in particular for de-escalating, for kind of creating wraparound services from adults to really help kids learn how to communicate again. There was some discussion about how one of the results of the pandemic has been that kids just don't know how to communicate with each other any longer. And we heard that later about education and academic tactics and how kids don't know how any longer to participate in a classroom and how, you know, teachers are having to spend big pieces of their day teaching kids how to communicate with one another. Well, Jill, I'm not sure this is just that our children or our students are having a harder time resolving conflict that may arise, but I think our adults are having that hard, harder time resolving conflict. It's a, it's a difficult time. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's political uncertainty. There's economic uncertainty. There's health uncertainty. It does take a whole city coming together to try to help people feel more stable, to feel like they're safe and in control of their environment. And 
I think what we heard last night was the superintendent calling for our community organizations, our faith-based organizations, leaders of our city to come together to say, let, let's make sure that everybody feels safe in our city, is able to communicate with one another and resolve conflict. And you know that's currently not happening. Now, Jill, we have heard the numbers in our city, like safety is better than, right? The number of violent cases of of crime have gone down than previous years. It doesn't feel that way when we talk about our young people, primarily because in the last few weeks, we've heard of some really concerning cases of students bringing in weapons to schools or students being hurt in and around our schools. And the superintendent owns this and says that we have to do a better job, and, and we do. We did hear from the superintendent that she expects a report from the Council for Great City Schools in the coming weeks to talk about safety. But, you know, honestly, Jill, there's no one solution to this. There's like we have to have schools where everybody feels a sense of belonging, of welcomeness, of wanting to be there. That's both with the adults and with the students. That's right. And and it really is about having that same sense in the communities. And so this is this is a citywide issue. And this is, you know, everyone needs to lean into this, including, you know, the mayor um, from the top down. We have to have a concerted effort on how we make sure that kids in the city feel safe and cared for. You know, along those lines, the next thing that the superintendent talked about was chronic absenteeism. So not only do schools seem to be more dangerous or less safe, there's a good number of kids who aren't showing up for school every day. Yeah. So Jill, we, we heard some really concerning numbers last night from the superintendent when asked, uh, she was actually asked about this at grades one through eight, what the chronic absenteeism rate was. And she said that it's somewhere around, you know, almost 25% for grades one through five or something to that effect. Yeah. And it almost rises to 30% for grade eight. Jill, I, d- I do have some questions about this, th- those data, because to be chronically absent, you, w- you would have had to be absent for 18 or more days. And it's just hard for me to believe that that is the case up to this point of the year. I'm hoping that that's a prorated percentage, mm. like that, you know, it's like about 10% mm. of the days thus far. Mm. And that would be more like maybe four days absent so far. So I'm just really hopeful that that is not the case. But we did hear from the superintendent that last year, these numbers were pretty similar, that we have chronic absenteeism for about 20 or a little bit more than 20% of our students at in our elementary schools. That's really concerning. This does get us in a little bit into our human capital presentation last night. In this presentation, they noted essentially that they've increased the number of positions in the district by about 1,200 since 2019. So we've added 1,200 positions. Mm-hmm. We've seen a decrease in students by the thousands over the last few years. Right. And we still have 800 vacancies, which as you noted, about 200 of them are classroom teaching positions. I should note too, Jill, that like we posted about 800 central office positions. I mean, so- how does that, what are 800 people doing in central office? Uh, the previous administration, Jill, there's been about $400 million plus million added to the school system through federal relief dollars. Right. And the previous administration spent the majority of those funds on positions, as did many districts around the country. They basically said, let's, let's surround our students with more adults. More social workers, more... So we've added, we've added almost 200 instructional coaches. Mm-hmm. These are people who coach teachers around professional development. Mm -hmm. We've added 115 family liaisons. 
We have now a librarian in every school. That's mm-hmm. I think that's essentially allocated position. Mm-hmm. So those are noted essential office positions. We added a, a 146 social workers. So Jill, so we've added a large number of central office positions, mm-hmm. and yet we remain with about 200 teaching positions open. Right. And so I think, you know, Brandon Cardet Hernandez got at this issue, and he said, mm-hmm. "Look, I-, I raised this when right. we were saying we're going to add all these positions, but we really didn't know where we're going to find the people." For, the, for those positions. Right. We're at a loss for teachers across the country. This is not. Correct. It, it, so well, there are less, there are fewer teachers in the market than ever before. Actually, Jill, like nationally, th- this is debatable. The amount of federal funding that went out to school systems yeah. caused many, many districts to add positions, okay. both teaching positions and other positions. There's not necessarily a huge loss here of like teacher pipelines. So mm. universities are still preparing teachers as they were. Right. But there's been a massive increase in the number of positions added to school systems. So more jobs. More jobs, okay. more competition yeah. for people to get into those jobs. We didn't talk about this last night, but you know, there's been a concerted effort in Boston to hire earlier, to hire in the spring, to get the best candidates earlier. But what we're hearing now is basically Boston's hiring a preponderance of their teachers in the summer or even in the fall. We're back to being, if we're the last ones hiring educators, we're not going to find them. They've already been hired. Especially if it's a competitive market. So it's not necessarily that there's a dearth of teachers, although some teachers have decided to move on to other professions. It's, to your point, there's many more jobs, actually. The attrition, Rachel, is is actually pretty consistent with what it's been in the past. So we're not, you know, this notion of the great resignation yeah. is not necessarily clear here in Boston. Yeah. We have seen a slight uptick, but it doesn't account for these vacancies, which we, you know, we're about three times the amount of vacancies we would have in any other year. And at the at the end of the conversation, the chair did ask about ESSER funding and what are we what are we doing to fund positions once this money, which is finite, runs out. And the answer was basically like kind of an articulation of where all the money comes from, but not necessarily a strategy for how we're going to continue to fund all of these folks once CSR funding is gone. It's going to be a massive problem. I mean, we've talked, I mean, I feel yeah. like we've discussed this I, at length I, over yeah. and over again. And now we're starting to see the result of this is we have unfilled positions. We have unfilled teaching positions. We probably have had teachers leave the classroom to go be instructional coaches or for other positions that may pay more and yeah. provide more flexibility. And we're left without teachers in right. classrooms. And it's really concerning. You know, we've, I have said this multiple times. If we have any content area people that are in central positions that could fill those teacher vacancies, they, they should go back to the classroom and teach in those positions until someone is hired for that position. Absolutely. Because if you are a family who is without specific teachers in classrooms, you're, of course, going to start shopping around, right? You're not going to leave your kids in that situation. So we didn't hear what was raised by member Cardet Hernandez. And does the family know what the, the classroom cover and school-based coverage plan is? He was basically saying, do parents know yet yeah. if, you're, if their child is not in a classroom with an accredited teacher? And we heard that that notice will be sent out in a few weeks. Yeah. So we should ask, you know, every parent should ask if, they are, if their child has a teacher who is certified teaching them Not every day. Not only that, if you have a high school student, you should, you should ask, who are my child's teachers? Yeah, I mean, Jill- And just, what credentials do they have? Anecdotally, I know of, um, I'm very familiar with one situation in which a teacher of a content area, a science class, yeah. is not there. And so there's a whole class of students who are essentially being taught by a teacher who is next door. 
So that teacher sort of goes through the, the connected tour, door hmm. and tells them an assignment. And those 30 students have to work independently on that assignment while the teacher next door is teaching the other class. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is happening, I think, more than we know. What we didn't hear also last night was about teacher attendance or chronic absenteeism for teachers. Hmm. There has been, again, anecdotal evidence that like there's a lot of shifting of, of staff in schools and students are having multiple adults uh, on, on any different occasion. And so I think it would be important to hear what's happening with teacher attendance going forward. Can I, can I, um, can I spend a couple of minutes on what the presentation last night was about for human resources though, Jill, because we just covered that there were some openings and vacancies, yeah. but the presentation was really about racial diversity. So let me just talk for a minute about what we heard last night and then what we would expect to hear sort of what was missing from the presentation. So Jill, first, the presentation last night was really based on the Garrity Order of 1974. Right. So this was an order that was given by Judge Garrity when Judge Garrity demanded that the district desegregate. Mm-hmm. So he both gave the order that students must be moved and integrated into schools he also gave the order that the district needs to maintain a workforce of 25% black teachers and 10% other mm-hmm. teachers, racially diverse teachers. And that order was from 48 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the district, for some reason this year, has labeled educators who fall under this order, which is all licensed educators, teachers and guidance counselors, the district labels them as Garrity educators which is a very strange term to me. Powerful um, though, isn't it? It, it is, but it, it, this to is- To brand them that way? To brand, right. But Jill, what I would push, the district has changed substantially over the last 48 years. What I would push for is a stated goal for the district to say very clearly that the diversity, the racial, cultural, and linguistic diversity of our teachers should reflect the racial, cultural, and linguistic diversity of our students. Right. We should be thinking about targets and goals that are updated, that are right. that are well surpassing the Garrity order. And that's what we missed last night. Should you know, should we be at 25% black teachers? Yes, we should. But should we be far surpass that 10% other for our Latinx teachers? Of course we should. We should be far surpass that right. based on the based on the population of our students. We've heard in the past few meetings that there are major initiatives that the district is undertaking in our schools. One of them is about creating all schools as inclusive classrooms. So having more teachers certified in special education and the content area, but having more inclusive settings. So we need more more teachers of students with disabilities and content areas. And we've also, at the last meeting or two meetings ago, we heard about every one of our schools being bilingual schools. So we need more linguistic diversity. So if you put overlay all of these, we need triple certified teachers, right? We need content certified teachers. We need teachers who are also certified in special education. And we need teachers who speak another language other than English. In order to meet all of those objectives. And we need teachers who are racially and culturally diverse that reflected the, the racial and cultural diversity of the students who are being who we are serving. So we lay, you should, that should be laid, on, laid out and said, here are our goals, here's what we want to achieve, and then we should set targets year over year for those goals. Mm -hmm. And then we should say, what does our pipeline look like? What are our pipeline programs look like? Do they, will they produce our goals? Will they get to our goals? Then we should think about our hiring practices. 
Do we recruit well outside of those pipeline programs? Are we hiring early? Are we getting the best teachers into all of our schools early in the year? And then we should think about evaluation and support. So how are we supporting those teachers once they enter into our workforce? How are we evaluating them, giving them really good feedback? And then how do we retain them over time and help them grow in their profession? Right. So, right. So that's the business of school. That is that is a business of school. That that's how you create a cohesive school system that that is logical and coherent. So it, right. So you know, it just feels like that would have been a great report to hear right. last and, night. Instead, we that would heard, have made a lot of sense. Right. Instead, we saw a lot of numbers about the Garrity educators. It was a very baseline report out. I mean, I, quite honestly, Jill, the numbers don't don't add up from one slide to another. So if you actually ta- tabulate all the numbers. They don't make sense. It was a very concerning report. There was a question by Vice Chair O'Neill about evaluations. Separately, I want to ask you about the evaluation process, how we're doing on that, because all employees at every level of our district are entitled to an annual evaluation saying, here's the things you're doing well, here's opportunities for improvement. It has to be fair. It has to be unbiased. It has to be justified. And that is for everyone in the schools. It's also for our school leaders. It's also for our district administrators, all the way up to the superintendent. So you typically would also hear about, have we you know, completed the evaluations as set forth by state regulations of our educators? And we heard that you know, our evaluations of our teachers and our principals are somewhere in the eight, high 80s completion rate. So we still have about 10 to 15% of educators not getting evaluated. But we heard a very concerning number, Jill, which was about only 50% of our central office staff are getting evaluations. Why would that be? There's little accountability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you basically have, you've increased massively by yeah. hundreds and hundreds of people, right. the amount of people in central office. Right. And then only about half of the people in total are getting supervised and evaluated. Hmm. Anyway, that was our human capital report. There, you know, I would hope that this is revisited soon and that the appropriate data and strategy is put into place for our human resources. Jill, there was one other report last night on transformation schools. Right, right. These have been referred to as turnaround schools in the past. These are our lowest performing schools in our in our district. These are these are these are schools also that Desi is very concerned about. That's right. So we have 28 schools in the in transformation school right. category. These are um, schools that have been in transformation and since 2019 when right. the last label was placed on them. Some of these schools have made tremendous progress. Like the GRU was presenting last night, who has a tremendous leader, and they've made some really great progress, uh, double-digit proficiency movement in the past few years, which should be absolutely celebrated. But the, you know, honestly, Jill, the presentation wasn't didn't knock anybody's socks off. So what we heard last night was there's essentially networks of these schools, that the big innovation is that these schools would be grouped with other schools in the district. They'll work together. They'll have very clear plans, focus on literacy, and a focus on attendance and social emotional health of the students. What we didn't hear, Jill, was anything really dramatic. Like we didn't hear that all these, every student at at these lowest performing schools would get one-to-one high dosage tutoring. Right. We didn't hear that every one of these students would be allowed to go to school longer during the day. Right. We didn't hear that all of them would be given a really good before and after school program to extend the supports for those students. We didn't hear about longer year acceleration academies or or summer programming. We didn't even hear that there's going to be more human capital support for these schools, meaning that we're going to rethink our administrative structure of these schools. Typically, the job of the principal is really hard to 
uh, turn around a lowest performing school. And so, you know, from our colleagues outside of the school system, we've learned that like to have a three person team tends to work really well, a, a person in operations, a person in academics, and then a leader of the school. And that team works really hard to support the teachers in that school. So the things we didn't hear anything that was innovative. We heard kind of the same old stuff and it was highly concerning. Joel, and we heard most- some hopes, but not hows. Some hopes, some process, yeah. no hows, nothing that would make us think that these, these schools would dramatically improve performance for their students. Yeah. Some of this has got to be coming up, right, in the discussions with Desi, though, too. This was a report that I think was in place to respond to Desi's yeah. MOU. And uh, I hope the response is that's all nice, but what is actually happening to dramatically improve the performance of students in those schools? And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. We want to hear from you. If you have concerns about how BPS is serving your child or your family, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. And if you'd like to share a thought that we may use in a future episode, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-261-5904. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.